Welcome, everyone. Very pleased to see you, and really very pleased indeed that even out of term that, uh, that so many of you have come to join us. Uh, this lecture is part of Growth Week of the International Growth Center, and I'm Jonathan Leap. I'm the Executive Director of the International Growth Center, and I want to start by just saying two minutes about what the IGC is all about, and then I have the great pleasure of introducing the chair for uh, this evening, who will then introduce our speakers. The International Growth Center is initiated and funded by the Department for International Development here in the UK with the aim of promoting sustainable growth in developing countries by providing demand-led policy advice based on frontier research. So what the IDC is all about is really bringing research and policy closer together and doing that by bringing researchers and policymakers closer together. And we do that through a unique model which has been made possible by the funding from, from the UK government. That model is one which enables us to construct a global network of leading researchers in growth and development from around the world and, and this is the expensive bit, 15 country offices in Africa and Asia. We have 10 country offices in Africa and 5 country offices in Asia. They enable us to develop the local knowledge, the local networks, and the high-level policy contacts that enable us to bring together researchers and policymakers to do something new. And that something new is to explore and dis discover the key growth challenges together. That is, to work collaboratively in identifying what research questions most urgently need to be addressed. So in contrast to the normal supply-driven model where a researcher shows up with her findings, or a demand-driven model where the, the government just asks for something narrow uh, and, and, uh, and uh, gets that in you know, two or three weeks. We're about focusing on what we call co-generation of knowledge, that is bringing researchers and policymakers together to learn together and to enable frontier research, which typically is miles away from policymaking processes, to actually feed concretely into policy decisions. Well, it's a great pleasure, as you can imagine, to have on our panel tonight uh, such distinguished feature, uh, figures from the policy world and from the academic world. I'll let the chair introduce the speakers, but let me just briefly introduce the chair. Delighted to have this evening uh, Professor Leonard Wanchikon as the chair. He's a professor of economics and politics at Princeton University, and you might not guess from that background or from looking at him that he spent two years in prison in Benin following student protests uh, during the period of dictatorship. Uh, he has most notably uh, recently established the African School of Economics in Benin, which is currently educating its first 80 students uh, and a very exciting uh, enterprise in terms of raising the capacity that Africa desperately needs to make good policy. Professor Wachkan. Yeah, thank you. So, so thanks, uh, Jim, for an extremely generous introduction. So uh, before I say a few words about um, uh, the speakers today, uh, let me tell you a story. So it was last week. Uh, I was talking to a journalist, and he asked me, you know, 
you are a professor at Princeton, so tell me what are the next, what are the most appropriate development model for Africa for the next 50 years? Uh, is it the Chinese model? Is that the American model? Or the Swedish model? And I said, all the above. So, because we all have one thing in common, infrastructure and education. So for me, beside education, beside quality education, infrastructure, roads, energy, are really, really critical for African development. So uh, isolated places, for instance, in Africa, tend to be much poorer, even when they have high lung fertility. And I've, in fact, I find in one of my research that when roads are bad, lung fertility could be a curse. You get poorer when the land gets better. You know. They tend to have lower level of education, and they tend to have bad government. So I'm, I'm so glad that infrastructure development has become really key for development thinking today, especially in the context of Africa. And I'm so uh, glad, I'm so happy that uh, uh, the International Growth Center has made this uh, the focus of its research and policy engagement for the past year or so, and that they have invited uh, the Dr. Donald Kaberuke from uh, the uh, African Development Bank to be the keynote speaker on this topic today. Um, especially to, to talk to us about the challenge of raising resources uh, to build infrastructure. Because when you have, um, when you have relatively weak governments, how do you sort of raise enough resources from, uh, you know, from the government? How do you uh, use public resources to actually um, you know, build infrastructure this is very difficult. So you have to turn to the private sector. And this is very challenging. You need to think hard. You need to sort of build incentives for this kind of policy to be effective. So I'm very glad that this team has been uh, the topic of uh, International Growth Center and this conference uh, for, 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 for this week. So let me say a few words about the speaker and about the discussion. And they, all, they don't need any introduction, but let me say a few words. Uh, Dr. Donald Kaberuka, as, as I said earlier, is uh, the president of African Development Bank. He's the, one of the foremost um, you know, policymakers, thinkers of African development for the past 10 years and beyond. I said beyond because he was the, one of the chief architects of uh, the economic recovery of Rwanda that we will look back maybe 100 from years from now and be really impressed about how a country could so rapidly recover from such a tragic experience. And so he also transformed the African Development Bank, uh, not only in terms of its organization uh, capacity, but also its vision. And that's why today the organization is far more you know, uh, you know it's, I, I shouldn't say far more, but I should say something like it's, it's well-respected, you know, it's really well-respected, has a lot of credibility around the world. So this is, uh, this is fantastic. And I'm, I'm glad to be introducing Dr. Kaberuka before his talk. Um, Professor uh, Paul Collier um, is also needs no introduction. He's one, one of the most innovative and prolific uh, you know, development economic thinkers uh, for the past for several decades. 
and he has um, he's one of the director he's the director of the International Growth Center and also the, the director of the Center for the Study of African Economies for a long time he's done several path-breaking work in, uh, on conflict on resource curse on um, on the culture of development and, and, and so on. So those two uh, uh, speakers today hopefully will help us to have a deeper understanding not only of the topic at hand, which is financing uh, infrastructure, but also development economic challenges in general. Thank you. Uh, good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming so many. Although I'm not sure if it is to listen to me or to Paul Golly. <laughs> Either way, thank you very much for, for coming. Now, I want to thank uh, Jim Lip and uh, Robin for inviting me. Uh, Prof, you began by saying that you often asked uh, about Chinese model, Scandinavian model, American model, what else? Minimum. Yeah. I'm asking the same question. But I'm in a bind because I'm going to disagree with you. You said all of the above. My answer is none of the above. <laughs> <laughs> uh, none of the above because I think one of the mistakes we have made in Africa over several decades was to think there is a model out there on the shelf you can go and buy or copy. And what I've been saying to African leaders is development has no staircase. It has no ladder. There are no easy options. You have to go up the ladder. You'll fall down, but you'll get fit along the way. Learn from your own lessons. Or to use uh, Deng Xiaoping's famous phrase, you cross the river by filling the stones. But the idea that you can pick, it is the Washington consensus. It is the Beijing consensus. It is a welfare more than other countries. That is where we have gone wrong. But there is only disagreement I have with you. <laughs> but thank you nonetheless uh, to the IGC for inviting me and for, to you, Paul, for commenting on what I'm going to say today. But when Paul, first of all, brought the idea with me, I was not sure that what is it I can say today which Paul has not written about. <laughs> nonetheless, being uh, an African leader and aware of the changing narrative on Africa, yeah, that is very good, very bad. There are people right now writing about the Africa rising story, and there are others waiting to write the obituary of the African rising story. That is a drama about my content. So each time I have an opportunity to spell out what I think is happening, I welcome it. So before I talk about financing and infrastructure, I want to share with you my reading of where I think Africa is today. Because in my job as president of the bank, I have traveled to every single one of them, except Somalia, for security. And I think I have some understanding of the political economy uh, of almost each one of them uh, because of uh, things we have to do. So the first thing. Whether you believe in Africa rising or waiting for the obituary, there's one thing at least the numbers don't lie. And that is that 
between 1980 and 2000, African per capita incomes were declined. Africa as a continent was getting poorer. So that is a fact. It's a number. We may argue about 20%, 22%, but that is a fact. So population increasing, economic growth stagnating or declining, and the continent was getting poorer. So that is a fact. The second fact is that between the year 2000 and today, the same figure has changed direction. It has increased by around 30%. I'm talking about real per capita incomes. So that too is a number. It cannot be contested. The second thing, that contrary to popular views, this is not simply about China and commodities. Because for those who are ready to write the obituary, they're looking at iron ore prices, which have gone from $25 in the 90s to $140, now down to 80 and they think, well, that's the end of Africa. The truth of the matter is, some of the fastest growing countries, including my own, I can see the Minister of Trade of Rwanda is here and the Ambassador. I'm sure they can explain better than I. Rwanda has no oil, no gas, no minerals. And so does Ethiopia. But these have been some of the fastest growing countries on the continent of Africa. So the idea that it is all about oil and minerals does not sell. Although export performance has been a major contributor. And by the way, for both countries, Ethiopia and Rwanda, it has not simply been about economic growth, it has about equitable economic growth. Because in both countries, poverty has actually come down. In the case of Ethiopia, from 60% in 1995 to 30% today. You recall Ethiopia was the poster child of poverty, of starvation. Today, Ethiopia is growing at a double digit, one of the fastest on the continent of Africa, without oil, without gas. I can see Paul, you're shaking hands, so you agree. At least I've got a witness here. Now, so if export performance has been only one of the variables, what were the others? The first one was uh, investment, especially investment in infrastructure. Every single African country is struggling to catch up with energy deficit, with highways. So there is a huge amount of investment. In fact, the numbers I have here is that gross capital formation is up uh, about 23% from around 10% a decade ago. Maybe Paul will uh, talk about that. The third factor, rarely uh, discussed, is about domestic demand. Because of uh, demographics, there are more people, they are younger, they are in urban areas. So a lot of things are happening in all these big cities, from Lagos to Kinshasa to Nairobi. And by the way, a lot of foreign direct investment into the continent of Africa, much of it has gone to the extractive industry, but about 30% by our estimates have gone actually to respond to this uh, uh, pent-up demand. The other factor has been stronger links with the emerging markets, with China, India, Brazil, and many others. There's a tendency to focus too much on China. But the numbers before me tell me for example, taking the case of Brazil. In 2000, FDI, $4.3 billion. Now, $27 billion. Turkey, $2.1 billion. Now, $13.3 billion. So, there's too much focus on China. But actually, it is much more diversified. And finally, another factor 
I know there's a little blip about Ghana nowadays, going back to the International Monetary Fund. It has been a solid record of macroeconomic performance, which I think we can teach Europeans a few things in terms of managing debt and managing the, the deficit. Having said that, as an African leader, I cannot deny the serious problems we have to deal with. The first one is that poverty is declining, but it's not declining fast enough. Number two, there are countries who are left out of this dynamic. Those are the countries, for one reason or another, uh, incomes are declining, so people are dying in Lampedusa trying to cross the Mediterranean, or because there are some issues in the social political area. So that is the other side of the growth history. Social indicators are improving, and the most improved of all of them is the death of African children, which has been cut by, by half, under five years. However, uh, indicators will show that inequalities are increasing. You have people living sumptuous life and others living in misery. So outside Latin America, the measurements of, of inequalities are now highest in Africa. So you have got those who own private jets and those who have to walk 10 kilometers to an unpaved road. The message I keep giving to these people is that our test of how well we are doing cannot be dependent on how many millionaires we are creating, who we celebrate, but how many millions of people we pull out of poverty. So the number of jets on the tarmac might be interesting for the sellers of those jets, but not impressive from where I sit. There is another issue, which uh, I'm sure you'll ask me, that the limits of uh, social change. There's expanding the GDP, but the structure of the economy is changing very slowly. Now, therefore, when a Senegalese uh, taxi driver said in French, on mange pas la croissance, you can't eat growth, I feel for him. There's a degree of cynicism about these numbers, fantastic numbers, but where's the dollar? Where's the CD? Where's the naira in my pocket? That, too, is a big issue. So the challenge of making this growth equitable is not simply about social justice. For a social progressive like I believe I am, like many of you, it is socially right that we have equitable development. But it's also a condition for sustainability. Because if you have broad-based growth, you shall grow your middle class. If you grow your middle classes, it influences the economics, the politics, almost everything which you require uh, to move ahead. Some of these large emerging countries, you see having problems. You have riots in Sao Paulo or other places. It's around these issues. They are still the same. It's a variation for them of what the economists like Paul call the middle-income country traps. They have to work around them. But for us, it focuses on issues of inclusion. However, if we can uh, address issues of inclusion inequalities, I'm now convinced that the goal of eliminating poverty by the next two decades is actually feasible for the majority of, of Africans, if we address the things I've just mentioned. Now, but there are also new threats which we didn't know before. 
And the first one is uh, jihadism. I don't have to, to explain whether it is the variety of al-Shabaab in East Africa, whether it is its cousin Boko Haram, or its relative in Mali, it's a threat which we didn't know before. It's a threat in a sense that it diverts attention from economic development, let alone uh, killing people, but above all, it changes the brand of Africa. In other words, irrespective of the fact that you have many more conflicts outside the African continent, there are many more people affected by conflicts outside the African continent, but the brand out there is Africa as a continent of conflicts, and these kind of things are not interpreted quite well. Yet, what we know is that these movements, all they do, they come to African countries, they take over local grievances, which are real, around inclusion, and they turn them into their own agenda. And so, in addressing inclusion and inequalities, we're also denying these jihadist movements uh, a domestic uh, place. Did you know that some of these jihadists don't even speak a single African language? But they are there fighting local issues because they have taken over the local uh, agenda, local frustrations. So there is a security dimension internationally, but there is a domestic dimension dealing with inequalities and social uh, exclusion. Now the new one, managing the epidemics. I've been in London for the whole day today, and I'm talking about Ebola everywhere, because that's the question. Now, this epidemic is one of the most serious the world has ever known. But if it had taken place here in London, the chances are people would have dealt with to never become a big issue. Patients quarantined, looked after, and then the, uh, uh, the system's working to ensure it is not spread. But here's the problem is that, A, Ebola has struck at one of the weakest regions in Africa. Because Sierra Leone and Liberia were at war for almost a decade and a half. They were recovering, trying to rebuild their health systems. And so their systems were not yet equipped, capable of handling this particular epidemic. And to make matters worse, there was a failure on the international system. I think I can say this without uh, uh, fear of uh, being a diplomatic poll. I think this is one of the most incompetently handled epidemic, perhaps in the last 50 years. Incompetently handled because the resources exist to deal with it. Knowledge exists to deal with it. But I think the way it was handled is a little local epidemic is what has led to this disaster. We're trying to handle it. We ourselves, uh, by the end of this month, will have put in that region close to $210 million in direct budget support to the three countries affected so they can handle the epidemic. And I very much welcome the measures taken by President Obama uh, last week and the British Prime Minister here to put at the disposal of these countries the logistics necessary to handle Ebola. I'm certain <coughs> it will be dealt with. But once it has been dealt with, there are social economic consequences we'll have to work and resolve together. Now, having said this, and the spirit of the invitation uh, you gave me, so what do we need to do now to go forward uh, to keep the momentum? 
For sake of simplicity, I shall say three things. And I shall call them the three I's. I like letter I. The first one is about integration. Whatever is happening on my continent will happen faster or slower depending upon how quickly we come together. Not as political entities, but as a, a single market. At least five single markets, like we have in Europe. I know there are technical arguments about how fast, but this is an imperative as far as Africa is concerned. The second one is around the second I, which is institutions. And here I'm not talking about Westminster democracy. I'm talking about simple things which you and I agree are key for investment. Stability, institutions that create a stable country. Number two, institutions that build the rule of law, which institutions which build property rights. Now, whether you find these around the Westminster style of democracy or some other variations is something different. But every investor looking for a stable country, whether the rule of law, property rights, those kind of things. And thirdly, infrastructure. We used to call it, when I was a student, Paul, uh, social overhead capital. Now we call it infrastructure. Either way, that for me is the third biggest uh, bottleneck. So for this evening, and the spirit of this conversation, I want to focus on infrastructure. But I want to focus on infrastructure not simply as a challenge, but also as an opportunity. I don't have to explain to this gathering why a human body needs a backbone, a blood system, a lymphatic system, is the same. An economy cannot run until basic infrastructure is running. When Europe was destroyed in World War II, the World Bank was created, and the first thing they were doing is to rebuild infrastructure in the European continent. Airports, dams, bridges. It is the same on the African continent. <clears throat> Yet, uh, up to maybe around 2000, how much are we spending on infrastructure? Less than 5% of GDP. Uh, now the figure has gone up probably to around 15%. But that gap still costs us about 2% of GDP per year. So instead of growing at 8%, where we need to be, we are now at 6% because the 2% is energy outages, highways unpassable, that kind of stuff. In fact, at the last annual general meeting, uh, Paul, President Seven made a, a, a joke. But it's not a joke. It's a serious matter. He said Africa is a land of miracles. Without adequate infrastructure, we can grow at 7%. But just imagine if we had basic infrastructure. It would not be 7%. It would be 9%. So it is a, an issue uh, which we have to resolve from that perspective. Now... But a decade of economic growth, rising population, uh, urbanization, increased investment in extractives, has made the demand for everything from rail to ports to roads to bridges extremely urgent. Now, did you know that uh, the whole of sub-Saharan Africa has less energy than Spain? If you take the whole of East Africa and Southern Africa and take out South Africa, less energy than Finland. These are numbers you know very well. And often we pay the highest price in the world. Liberia, where there is uh, this crisis now, has only installed 25 megawatts of electricity. 
and they pay up to 50 cents per kilowatt hour. I don't know the price is here. I would be surprised if above 10, 10, 11 is a benchmark in this uh, type of countries. Now, take the congested ports. Take the power cuts. So the solution sometimes uh, provided is self-provision. So a company would put up generators for their own firm. But then they'll pass on this cost to the consumer, eventually, of course. So we are trying to see also the impact on health education, on gender equality. If kids have no lights, they will study in the streets, as you have seen, including in Berlin, who have got a picture, very interesting. Kids, evening, go to the streets to study under the traffic lights. You affect health because you cannot keep vaccines uh, in the refrigerator. Gender equality because girl, children cannot go to school. So infrastructure is not simply about an economic input. It's about a social input. Now, so what do you have to do? What is the gap? Now, the numbers uh, we all have from the World Bank and ourselves and many others is that it's about $92 billion per annum. Now, from all sources now, we can mobilize around $50 billion, say. So that will be domestic taxation. That will be uh, domestic bond markets. That will be natural resource-linked uh, deals with China. That will be IFIs like the World Bank, African Development Bank, uh, and so on. But these uh, sources are reaching their limitations. They are reaching their limitations for different reasons for each one of them. Uh, ODA, Overseas Development Aid, is flattening out for reasons you can understand. The natural resource-linked deals are okay if you have oil and gas. Sovereign bond issuance has its own limitations on the macroeconomic consideration. But I'm happy that in the last seven years, countries have raised about $16 billion in the markets. People tell me, wow, uh, this is dangerous. I don't agree. It's dangerous if you don't have domestic debt management capacity. It's dangerous if you invest in white elephants. But if you invest well and you manage technically, there are ways of managing these things. Now, vis-a-vis -vis the deals from China, they fall basically into about four uh, buckets. There's the China-Africa Fund, which gives grants as long as these are backed by Chinese uh, uh, firms. You have Exim Bank of China uh, with export credits. And sometimes for middle-income countries, the China Development Bank contributes. And then of late, uh, we're working with the Chinese government to invest some of the, the reserves, co-invest with us to build infrastructure. In fact, at the annual meeting in Rwanda, I signed with the governor of the Central Bank of China a $2 billion facility. So we're co-investing in roads, bridges, that kind of stuff. And they are happy with whatever return we get, they will get. But there's also a new source of funding which I am very proud about. And that is uh, countries like Nigeria, like Kenya and others, uh, re-examining the issue of subsidies, untargeted subsidies. And then the savings, they use them to invest in infrastructure. So instead of uh, subsidizing consumption, wasteful consumption, you subsidize the future growth potential of the, of the economy. 
Now, I need also to add uh, that I have taken a careful look at our own policies, and I concluded that it was time to re-examine our own credit policy. And I'm hoping the whole bank will do the same. So for now, out of all the 54 countries on the continent, only about 16 had access to our non-concessional window. The 39 other countries had to rely on concessional finance, both here and the World Bank. We have changed that. We have looked at now at different countries, uh, look at their macroeconomic governance uh, situation, and we are giving them access to, to our finance. <coughs> now, I know you have said this many times, Paul, but these countries go and borrow money in the markets at what, maybe 8% for a 10-year loan, but we can provide them a 20-year loan at around maybe 2, 2.5% with a small charge up front. So it is not only a cheaper way to borrow, it is a more effective way to borrow because we can package a lot of things together. And this, I thought this change of credit policy was absolutely vital at this point. I know people concerned by debt are saying, well, this is uh, premature. I disagree. And I was glad that our board of directors uh, followed us on this. Now, uh, Jim, I don't know how much time do I have. I would like to quickly, if you can guide me on this. Okay, I'll try. Now, I've talked about uh, infrastructure as a problem, but let's look at uh, the success story of our time, which is IT and telecom. Today, Sub-Saharan Africa has 10 sea under cables uh, in, in the ocean with a capacity of 100 terabytes. And this is making a revolution in terms of the cost of internet, the cost of telecommunication. And this happened because of the deregulation in the 1990s an institutional environment which has made it possible for private capital to invest in telecom and, uh, and uh, IT. So the question is, can energy follow? My answer is yes and no. No, because risks are not the same. The cost of entry and exit are not the same. And yes, because where the institutional reforms are right, we can see an avalanche of investment into the energy sector. So I'm hoping that energy can replicate what uh, telecom and IT has done. Now, let me tell you briefly what we are doing at African Development Bank in this area. If you could please put on my uh, bridge from... Uh, yes, yes, one. Take a look at that. Uh, this is uh, Abidjan in the Ivory Coast. There's the headquarters of the bank. We have just returned to Abidjan after 11 years uh, in Tunisia. The city was suffering a lot of uh, congestion. Now they're building uh, this toll bridge across the lagoon uh, in Abidjan. We are leading in its financing and it's all private investment. Uh, I'm sure I can show you additional pictures. All private investment, no public money there. And they will recover this by, uh, by toll. Next one. This is how the bridge will look like shortly when you come to Abidjan and cross it. Private money. <coughs> now, this is a toll road in the middle of Dakar in Senegal, which we led again. Private money and a few IFIs. 
Not far from this highway, there's an airport, uh, the new airport in Dakar, again, mobilizing a private finance. So we have a lot of experience in these things. I could mention many more, but we don't have uh, the time. We also house a number of uh, initiatives uh, on our infrastructure uh, from the G8 and many other institutions. Now, so what is missing? I know Pauline and I have discussed this. You have said something I think is fundamentally important for this audience to understand. A $50 billion gap looks like big for us in Africa. But look at it from the global uh, pools of savings, it is something which the markets can easily deploy. But why is it not happening? Or happening in very uh, limited ways? This matter has been under discussion in the G20, in the G8, and uh, some initiatives are underway, and I want to welcome what the center is doing. I think we should work together to ensure that this private capital can, be, can find a good return in Africa, but also uh, help us in, uh, in this investment. <coughs> There'll be some work on de-risking these projects, make them attractive. There'll be some technical issues around uh, how you package uh, finance how you have uh, the contracts, but all those we can discuss. Now, people like to say Africa is very risky. Shall I tell you a story? Just before the financial crisis, a European investor uh, gets out of Cote d'Ivoire because they believe that was too risky. And guess what they invested? In Cyprus. And guess what they lost money? So, there are some of these risks about Africa which uh, frankly, stories will tell children at bedtime. There are real risks and there are perceived risks. And our challenge is to close the gap. Where are the risks? Let's deal with them. Where are the perceived risks? And we have to work on them. But the idea that uh, uh, Africa has such risk you cannot do airports and bridges, frankly, is not there. And I recall a story uh, speaking to Danish pension funds, and I said to them, why don't you come with us in, uh, in Africa? One of them said, you know, President, uh, during the financial crisis, we lost so much money in Spain, we have decided we're not going to go southland Spain. <laughs> I said to him, you know what? That is exactly the place you'll have to go if you have to pay your pensioners. I still believe that to be the case. But it will not happen by exhortation. We have to design the instruments for that to happen. And so before I close, let me describe an instrument I've just put in place precisely to make sure it happens. We call it Africa 50. And the word 50 is, it is symbolic. 50 years after independence, Africa is able, first of all, to mobilize its own pools of savings because they are considerable. Africans now invest the pools of savings where? In European paper. In U.S. paper, 10 years they get, what, 1.5%, 2%? Because they're looking for safety, they're looking for liquidity, they're looking for a return. I think we need to have an instrument which can provide them the same conditions. And Africa 50 is such an instrument. We have just uh, incorporated it only last month. Next year we shall issue our first uh, bond in the global markets. The African Development Bank is in there as a sponsor, as an incubator, as an anchor investor, as a fundraiser, 
and we shall have a service agreement with them to help them. So we have invested in this vehicle half a billion dollars as equity, and we have got a hundred million dollars to develop the projects. Because the key issue is not simply the money. People are looking at the projects which are bankable, which make sense. And that would be the first business line of Africa 50. Then the second business line would be how to, uh, to invest. So let me close. Uh, because time is limited. I'm sure we will find another time to, to speak about these things. So the first focus will be to say to Africans, 10 years of economic growth, you can fund your development, or a large part of it, from natural resources, domestic taxation, of course, also avoiding tax evasion by multinational corporations. Make sure they invest, but they pay their taxes. Spend well. All these oil and gas, mobilize them to build Africa's infrastructure. So this instrument will target, in the first instance, African own pools of seven. Well, that's the place to begin. The second target will be the global pools of savings, not as charity, not as uh, ODA, but as an investment with a return which will enable them to pay their pensions in 30, in 40 years. So let me conclude by saying the following. I've said Africa is at a turning point in spite of Ebola and all these issues. We now have to, to make sure that it actually goes to a tipping point, a point of no return. I've said the economies must grow, but they must grow sustainably, and that means fighting inequality and ensure that the growth is broad-based. Recognize that inequality itself is a break on further development because it limits the growth of middle classes and purchasing power. And let us deal with this impediment, which is lack of energy and infrastructure. Whether a small boutique owner in Lagos, uh, a garage owner in uh, Mount Country, or a factory in Nairobi, this is a problem which is eating into our economic opportunities. And finally, let us deal with issues of economic integration in the same way you have done here in Europe. But I want to end by saying that uh, being at the London School of Economics, I don't believe that Africa is an exception to the rest of the world. For a long time, people have looked at Africa as a place you go to do good, a place you go to help Africans. We are now saying, and the word listening, that is a place you go to do business, a place for investment. There will be issues now and then, a conflict here, a stolen election here, some challenges in other places, an epidemic here. But this is no different than Asia or Latin America. So I want to end by thanking you for inviting me. I'm sure Paul could have said this much more eloquently than I. <laughs> Maybe even more convincingly, but he invited me, so I had to say something. <laughs> and uh, Prof had been kind enough to invite me for dinner, and I know there's no free dinner. <laughs> so I hope that I've paid for my dinner already. <laughs> Thank you so much. think of a panel I'd be more proud or delighted to be on. So, uh, um, let me try and say a, a few comments about infrastructure that are, that are sort of useful. Um, 
we know the needs are huge and they've been estimated at about $40 billion a year deficit. Um, that's the sort of finance that's needed. Um, what's more, it's... Um, uh, as Dr. Kabaruka was saying, it's a sort of prior need that without the infrastructure, you're constraining the development. So um, it's not something you can uh, postpone until after you develop. It's not a nice-to-have. It's a have-to-have. Um, and that combination means that the financing difficulties are rather acute. You need the stuff before you've got the income, um, and you need a lot more uh, than you can actually uh, finance domestically. So what I thought I'd do is, is actually um, go through a typology of, of four different types of infrastructure, each of which has different international financing possibilities. And so we can then focus down on which are the components of infrastructure which need which types of private money uh, and what are the difficulties in shaping that. So uh, I'm going to start with the, with the nicest sort of uh, infrastructure. I, I'm going to call it infrastructure for free. Um, and it's the infrastructure that indeed you can get um, foreign private companies to pay for. Um, and really all you need to do is to tell them um, and uh, these are the companies uh, that are in already coming into Africa to extract uh, raw materials. And in order to do that extraction, they need infrastructure for their own use. Um, the most obvious thing is where you find uh, a natural resource uh, inland, somewhere in the interior and you need to get it to the coast. And for that, you need a railway. And the, 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 the natural resources are sufficiently valuable that that will more than pay for the railway. And so you're going to get a railway built. The question is, how useful is the railway to the rest of you? It's useful to get the resource out, and you'll be paid for the resource, but can it be designed in such a way that it's yet more useful than that? Uh, in other words, can the railway be designed so that it is multi-user and multi-function? And I want to make that distinction. Multi-function multi means uh, a railway that's there in order to extract iron ore mm. can also carry agricultural produce, mm. open up a development corridor. Multi-user means that a railway that's being built to extract iron ore for Global Iron Ore Incorporated uh, can also be used by uh, some other minerals company. Uh, this is actually a vital matter, and it's an issue which is entirely dependent upon African public policy. Uh, and I'll, I, I, I've been working with the government of Guinea uh, the last two, three years, and I'll take... They, they've got the biggest single um, iron ore deposit in, in the world, unexploited iron ore deposit. They, they need a railway for it, and the railway will get built in order to extract it. Uh, they've also got a lot of bauxite. The bauxite's already being exploited for years, 
And there's a railway that does that. So the railway that exploits the, 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 the bauxite is bokeh. The railway that is going to be built to exploit iron ore is, is Simundu. Yes. Um, and uh, Simundu is now being designed as a multi-user, multi-function railway. It wasn't going to be when the government initially discussed this with the iron ore company that's going to build the railway, the company said, don't be ridiculous. It's impossible. Um, the sort of railway you need to extract iron ore um, is completely different. And it go, you know, the, uh, the trains go backwards and forwards. They're very long. They're two miles long. Uh, and we can only operate it on dedicated use. It's got to be dedicated for iron ore, and what's more, it's got to be under, entirely under our control so that we can time the rail uh, shipments for the boats that come into the port. So it's out of the question. Um, quite separately, another bit of the same company was worrying globally that the next generation of iron ore extraction uh, wouldn't employ anybody. It's going to be massively capital intensive. And so uh, this director of strategy thought, was worried, where is our political constituency going to be if we don't employ anybody? Um, and so uh, it dawned on them that the political constituency could be the people who need the railway. But for that, you'd have to design the railway to be multi-user. Guess what? It turned out that was entirely feasible. Yeah? Of course, an iron ore company, its first focus is we want a railway to extract iron ore. We can't put cabbages on it. It would be a bloody nuisance. Right? But then, if they think about it, it turns out as long as you design it in advance that way, it's perfectly doable. Right? Multi-user is a bigger fight. Technically, of course, it's much easier. You're transporting the same stuff. But there's a huge advantage to a company in excluding other users because then any other resources that are discovered near that line of rail, you're the only company that can bid for them. So it's a bit of a fight to get multi-user. It's a fight that every African government should fight for. Now that's the difference between the railway that will be built to Simundu and the railway that was built for Bokeh. Because that is indeed a monopoly use by one company consortium. And that's the difference made by knowledge, research, and technical advice that a government then realizes we've got to negotiate differently. Okay? And that, that's where the, the sort of stuff that the International Growth Center can offer makes a huge difference. The railway for Simundu is going to be over a $10 billion investment. $10 billion. This is not chicken feet, right? And that could have been, basically, let's build a wall across Guinea. That's what you'd have had if this was a dedicated-use railway, just with a wall of iron ore trains going across the country. Instead of building a wall... Guinea is going to build a development corridor. And that flips that 10 billion. Right? It costs a little bit more. 
and so the government of Guinea will concede a little bit on taxes to pay for it. You can only skin the cat once, but it was worth doing. So that's the infrastructure for free category. Let's move quickly to the next category of infrastructure, and that is urban infrastructure. And my colleague Tony Venables spoke about this this morning, because the nice thing about urban infrastructure is that the whole point of the infrastructure is it raises the value of the city and therefore it's potentially self-financing. How do you pay for it? Well, here China has led the way because the way to pay for it is that as the land values appreciate, that appreciation in land value due to the infrastructure that builds the city, that appreciation in land value has to be captured socially, either by the government owning the land and selling it off, which is the Chinese model, or by steep taxation of the the appreciation of land values. At the moment, Africa's doing neither. But that's the, the way to finance urban infrastructure, through the appreciation in land values, capturing that. Now, if you need to spend the money that causes the land appreciation before you get the land appreciation, then you've got a financing problem. But this is a financing problem where it is not scary to borrow. So you could go to sovereign debt markets, sell a sovereign bond, and then repay the sovereign bond from the realised appreciation in land values. I absolutely agree with Dr. Kabaruka that better than going to the commercial market with a sovereign bond, you go to AAA, and the African Development Bank's pioneered it, and let's hope that that's a model copied by Big Brother in Washington. Um, It hasn't yet. Um, But it is crazy that Africa is borrowing at over 8% when the world risk-free interest rate, the AAA risk interest rate, is, is way below that. Africa's entire real interest rate is basically a risk premium which it could avoid. So that's the second category. It's not for free, but you've got a very... Simple financing problem. You pay, you get the appreciation, you pay back your your borrowings. The third category of infrastructure is much trickier. And this is something like rural road network. Suppose a rural road network is a really good investment. And suppose it yields a 20% Um, social rate of return. So this is a really good thing to do. Um, It's even worth borrowing at 8% to get a 20% yield. It looks pretty safe. Well, is it? (coughs) And here's the problem. The typical African country is only capturing about 20% of GDP in tax. So you do the rural roads, it yields 20%, but you're actually only capturing a fifth of that in the tax system. 
And so what you're actually capturing is not the 20%, but the 4%. But who's liable to make the 8% a year payments? Not the country, but the government. And so the government is stressing itself financially, even though this is a very valuable and necessary investment. What's the solution to that? At the moment, sovereign bonds are not alarming because Africa's so underborrowed that you'd reach a point where, um, that, where further borrowing would be scary. Not at 2.5%, but at 8.5%, it would be scary. So what's the alternative? Well, this is where Africa could use its own money. And in many countries, at the same time as Africa needs to do things like a rural road network, it's depleting its natural resources. It's fine to deplete your natural resources. If you just leave them in the ground, they're useless. But as you deplete your natural assets, you need to build some other assets. A rural road network that yields 20% is a great investment. Much better to have a rural road network yielding 20% than a load of iron ore in the ground that's not yielding anything. And so that's the, basically the, the financing deal you should do. If, again, there's a cash flow problem, it would take you a while to get the iron ore out of the ground, then, in a way, the, 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 the safest thing to do is to, is to, is to sort of pre-sell the iron ore, basically to use the iron ore, the future iron ore or the future oil or whatever, as collateral for borrowing that then funds the, the, the rural road network. And then we finally get to the fourth category of infrastructure, which is what Dr. Kaparuka was talking about, which is where potentially the user of that infrastructure can pay enough to provide a decent rate of return on the infrastructure. And that is a big category, and electricity is a sort of classic. Um, so there's a lot of potential there, but it's complicated. And just let me sketch um, three complications and then, as it were, a, a way forward, and, and then I'll close. So one difficulty is that quite often... Um, this is seen by the population as some sort of government responsibility. Electricity is a good example where uh, governments have very much underprovided electricity, but they haven't said it's not our job to provide electricity. And so um, the, whilst it would be nice to have um, privately provided electricity at a commercial price, even better, if you're a citizen, would be to have um, abundant publicly provided electricity at a subsidised price. The fact that that isn't actually a feasible menu um, uh, has to be explained to population, really. Otherwise, um, you get into a, a, a problem of, uh, of, of reform. The same is true with, with, the, with the road network. And um, a bridge is psychologically <coughs> much easier than, a, than, a, than other roads. 
People see bridges as separate. They see that they're expensive. And so you can put a toll on a bridge without incurring a lot of uh, agony. Um, Putting a toll on roads, um, there are plenty of examples where uh, the government thinks it can get away with it and then backs off once people protest. This is, I should, I should say, this has been true um, since the uh, the introduction. Britain introduced toll roads in uh, the 1750s, and uh, and it led to riots. And sometimes the the government took all the tolls off by about 1870 because by then they got enough other sources of revenue um, that they they could they could they could uh, they could pay for it in a better way. So, government sees the responsibility. The great, one great feature of mobile phones was that it was a new thing. Um, people didn't see it as a government responsibility uh, to give people an iPhone. Right? And so they were willing to pay for them and pay for the use. Um, the, um, the, the second problem is that... Uh, Stuff like electricity um, is a network industry. And we all know that network industries tend to monopoly because of the scale economies. And the private monopoly is totally ghastly. And so you've got to have regulation. Now, regulation is absolutely necessary to protect citizens from private operators of network industries. But um, a regulator has to have an irreducible amount of discretion because you cannot have complete information in advance to anticipate all circumstances. But if a regulator has discretion that then potentially becomes very scary for the operator, for the company. And so a network industry, private finance of a network industry, is either very scary for citizens or very scary for companies. And trying to navigate a degree of regulatory discretion with constraints and appeals processes on the regulator is very difficult, but that's what has to be done. The third type of problem is the hold-up problem. Uh, Once you've invested in the infrastructure, you can't take it out again. Um, If you've got one customer, the government, which is taking the offtake, you're subject to a hold-up problem. Before you put in the investment, the government can say, here's the deal, and then after you put in the investment, there's a lot of scope for government to say, well, that wasn't the deal. You know? Look, we didn't think you'd do that, and that invalidates it. Right? So, um, and because the c- company can anticipate that in advance, um, the solution if there's a hold-up problem is don't put yourself in a hold-up situation. Don't invest. And so these are the challenges that have to be faced. And they're complicated, and so the solutions are complex. And that's, again, where something like the International Growth Centre comes in. Complex solutions require a lot of academic expertise. And that is what is critically needed at the moment in getting the 
regulatory and architecture for this category of private infrastructure really off the ground. There's a wonderful opportunity. There's been more private interest internationally in funding African infrastructure in the last two years than in the entire accumulation of previous history. Uh, so now there is the opportunity to be seized, and the bottleneck now is actually intelligent, specialised knowledge. I'm delighted that the African Development Bank is actually in the forefront of doing this. The Africa 50 Fund, I want to commend to you all, it's worth following, this has been a really good development, and it's a development which needs to be copied. Um, I have to say I'm on the advisory board for your uh, big sister institution, and I recommended that to the president of your big sister, who said, I don't think we'd be able to do that. Um, but it sounds to me a little bit like that natural resource company that said, we can't do multifunction, multi-user, and then they discovered they could. Thank you very much. So, so thanks, uh, Professor Collier and French Dr. Carica for fantastic uh, presentation. So we have about 45 minutes for 30? 30 minutes for? 15. Oh, 15? Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. We have 15? Okay, that's okay. So we have 15 minutes for Q&A. And uh, so we'll take three questions at the time. So uh, please, since we don't have a lot of time, please be very, you know, short and concise. So uh, the first one, please uh, let me know what your name is. Oh, and wait for the mic. Hello, this is Marcus Edwards-Jones from uh, Afrin Energy and uh, Soma and Range Resources. Um, could the panel please uh, rank in ascending or descending order the countries in Africa where there is a, a social contract between the, the people in charge and the, the, the population where something can actually be done in terms of infrastructure where, where just to be, to, to be yeah. more Could you specific please speak up a little bit more to be more specific yeah um, if I'm if I'm if I'm going to put my clients' money into a, a, a hydroelectric power station or a, a motorway in Africa, how can I be sure that uh, my investors are going to make some money out of it, and that the uh, the, the people who to whom I'm paying my money are actually going to spend it on? Okay, building the, the motorway or building the hydroelectric power station, and not the. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Spirited off, and and, and and which countries would you rank as the, the the top three in which to invest? Okay. Being bearing in mind we are the London School of Economics and we want to make some money here. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. 
Hello. Um, I'm not sure if that covered what he was saying as well. Um, very simple question. Uh, Alternative Assets magazine. How big a role do you see private equity having in the next five, ten years on the development of what you're doing? Could you just say, how big a role to who? How who? big a role do you see private equity having the role on the of private development? equity firms? Ah, private equity, right. One more? Yeah. Uh, my name is Fred Amonia. And uh, I'll take on from what uh, Mr. Collier said. Complicated problems, complex situations require a lot of thinking. Now, in Africa, has got quite a few of them, and the question is to Dr. Kaberuka. Do you sometimes feel that uh, the, sh- the, the challenges of the continent tend to pull the bank more to the transaction end as opposed to facing the deeper research challenges of the continent to the extent that it appears if there's any thinking at all about the complexities of Africa that thinking seems to be based more outside the continent as opposed to down home thank you So, yeah. Um, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should start. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll 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 just kick us off. Um, I think um, there's potentially there's quite a big role for private equity. Um, the, um, but I would see it as, as, as basically at, at particular stages in African infrastructure. The typical infrastructure project has three phases. Um, catalyze it, build it, and operate it. Okay? Um, the catalyze phase is not big money. It's sort of typically maybe 10 to 20 million pounds. The build phase is big money. Um, now, private equity is looking for, you know, relatively high risk, serious returns, 20 sort of 20% a year return. Private equity—that's the sort of target you're looking at. Um, you cannot operate infrastructure, in my view, at, at that sort of return. And so, that tells you that there has to be, once you've built it, there has to be a credible exit strategy where the operating is owned by uh, basically public public owned maybe by a pension fund or something that's happy to to, to sit on a, a return of five six seven percent or something. Um, the uh, the high risk stages the are the catalyze and the build. Uh, the catalyze um, we actually there's, there's very little pipeline. And that's because the catalytic stage isn't properly set up yet. We need specialist teams um, that uh, can actually, both technically and politically, get a project to yes in much faster than it's been done historically. 
Three years, not eight years. Uh, The build stage is irreducibly high risk and needs an element of public risk capital in my view. The operate stage, as I say, there's got to be an exit strategy. And so the private equity bows out at that point. Or it passes it on to holders who see it not as a frontier investment, but as a utility. Um, I can't resist a a story that um, uh, I was brought into Moscow two or three years ago by a a big uh, investment firm um, to talk about, to Russians about investing in Africa. And so I, I said, it's very, it's very straightforward. I said, um, you're used to, to, to investing in Russia. Well, well, Russia is Africa plus risk. <laughs> um, and um, it didn't go down very well, actually. <laughs> um, uh, but I have to say that the, the company which brought me in um, has now been thrown out of Russia. So, but they haven't been thrown out of Africa. They've actually moved yeah. to Africa. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. So, so which are your three favourites? Oh, I'm sorry. I, 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 actually, this is something that Dr. Kabaruka cannot say. Yeah. <laughs> so let, 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 let um, um, I'll come back to you on that one. All right. Paul, let me, let, me, let me just mention briefly about this. Uh, I come to the ranking. <laughs> uh, in, the, in terms of uh, energy and independent power producers and investors in that sector, I agree. We've well, got three big reforms underway in almost every country which are absolutely fundamental for these things to happen. Number one is utilities. They have to be solvent, able to pay. Many of them are insolvent, unable to pay because of subsidies. So they buy electricity at 40 cents per kilowatt hour, set at 20 cents. So they accumulate losses on the balance sheet. So the second set of reform is about tariffs. So that they reflect costs, but also are socially just. And the third one is to ensure that the regulators are independent in law and in fact. Because far too often independent, independent regulators are, are independent on paper. But that is not enough for an investor. They want to be sure that this regulator is actually independent in fact as well. Because these agreements are for long term. Now, these kind of reforms are advanced in almost all African countries. Now, since you have asked me to attribute uh, uh, notes, uh, President Obama, when he was in Africa uh, last year, launched a program called Power Africa. And basically, a program to try to attract more American private investors into the power sector. And so the pact was good reforms, and then uh, we encouraged American business to, to come in. Target 8,000 megawatts of electricity. In all those countries, members of Power Africa, reforms going on are very interesting. Some are more advanced than others. Now, for reasons of uh, uh, to do with my own mission, I can only say this to them, those who are scoring poor notes. 
I can only say to them, you need to move faster. So you'll understand I cannot mention countries here, but let me pick two. Uh, and let me begin with Africa's uh, largest economy, which is Nigeria. Up to a year ago, uh, this power was, sector was the problem. But the president took some very tough decisions on tariffs, which means reducing subsidies. Never an easy decision anywhere. Number two, they reformed the utilities. And now, as I speak with you, investors are flowing to the Nigerian power sector. There are still issues to be resolved, but the big door has been opened. In the case of Kenya, we ourselves, as a bank, through the private sector, we are big investors there. We are doing some, I think, Danish companies want to be Africa's largest wind plant with a number of, uh, of sponsors. Because there the reforms are also well advanced. The Tanzanians are on the way. The Ghanaians are on the way. And almost every single African country. So some are advanced in some areas, others uh, less so. But I can see here that with an exception of about a dozen countries where the uh, subsidy reform is difficult, others are quite well advanced at different stages. I suppose diplomatically, that's the best way to put it. <laughs> yeah, three more. Oh. Yes. Thank you. Um, so I guess one tension with investment has to do with um, the time horizon, so both in terms of when the investment actually pays off. Um, and how long it takes to actually incorporate and build investment policies vis-a-vis -vis the shorter horizon um, on which uh, a policymaker would be in power. I guess that varies ac across countries and political regimes, but it, it, it's a fact that investment is a more longer-term um, thing than a political mandate would be. And I guess my question would be, if you are a policymaker who's keen to make an impact but is time-constrained, um, what would be your one advice in terms of getting a, a best outcome in a short period of time? Okay. Thank you. Um, I have two short questions. One is, uh, what are the lessons from kind of previous investment in infrastructure that has been led by the World Bank or AFDB in terms of making it more pro-poor? And then um, what can be the role for some of the smaller donors, such as the Department for International Development? What role can they play in facilitating investment in infrastructure in Africa? Okay. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Lloyd, uh, Lloyd Mawena, US, UCL. Uh, my question is, what is the potential for PP, the PPP model um, in African infrastructure? And the second part of that is, which sector is particularly, let's say, attractive to this PPP model within Africa? Thank you. Yeah. Mm. Okay, maybe one more. Then. Uh, Dr. Kabaruka mentioned that um, a single market would be needed in Africa. Um, so my question is, why does Africa need that single market, and how is that achievable, and how will this single market be useful in raising private investment? Okay. 
Thank you. You want to start? Okay. Uh, let me begin with the proper investment. If I can think of one thing which has changed the lives of poor people in Africa, it's a mobile phone. From a Maasai looking after his cattle in the northern Tanzania or southern Kenya, a poor farmer getting the right price, a woman in the rural areas able to reach for medical services because information is now available. Information is power. And this has been driven by the private sector. Not simply selling the mobile phones, but the IT-related infrastructure. It is so overwhelming. And if you're looking for evidence, go to countries where millions of people could never dream to have a banking uh, connection. Now they're able to access financial services. So I don't think there is a conflict between what is good for business and what is good for society. I actually think there's a sweet spot in this case. Do you know that sometimes the people who pay the highest price for energy in Africa are the poorest people? And so I think that the idea that private business puts money in energy in it related infrastructure is good for the business, but often very good for uh, the people you are referring to. Number two, uh, on the uh, uh, lessons, uh, if I understand the question well, uh, please forgive me. I have hearing. The one single policy uh, reform our governments have to do, I'll put them in a bucket I call predictability. Policies that someone can say these are predictable over the medium term. Mm -hmm. Nobody says be predictable over a century. But for heaven's sake, if policy change two, three times a year, whether it is the banking sector, energy sector, taxation, not only the investor has a problem, but even the citizens of the country have a problem. So, by the way, I should add something which uh, please forgive me to say. Even if the policy is not perfect, not very good, but at least it is predictable. We know the direction of travel. It is inadequate now, but it will improve over time. But not zigzag and volatile. It does not matter the sector. For me, that's the most important thing. Now, as for the single market, uh, get to the single market, whether in, in Europe, in Latin America, in Asia, the objectives are the same. You increase the size, the diversity of the markets. You bring down the cost of doing business. And in our case, it is about the physical barriers, roads and things, <coughs> and then the institutional barriers, but also cooperation in terms of services. Example, I understand the UK does not belong to the Schengen Agreement. But I'm an African. I'm a Rwandan. I can get to Italy on my Schengen visa and they travel through several European countries. I don't have to apply for visa at every European embassy, members of Schengen. I would like our people to do the same. I think Uganda, Rwanda, and Kenya have just done that. So if you get a Kenyan visa here in London, you can travel to all the countries. This does not cost money. It demands political decision. Second, today, because of poor infrastructure in Africa, but growing business, many people have to, to travel by, by air. <coughs> now, we pay some of the highest cost of 
uh, transport in the world. Something about 40% of what you pay. Now, there are many issues around infrastructure, but one single thing we can do is the deregulation of the aviation sector. Deregulation, of course, means also regulation in terms of safety, but deregulation in terms of allowing greater competition. That would drown, drive down the costs and increase integration. It does not cost money. It's about will. Then there are things which, of course, cost money. Power connections, highways, single border posts, the kind of things uh, we are doing. The only area where I caution uh, governments, uh, not surprising given where I come from, is the single currency. I think the single currency should be the destination, the end of a long journey, a journey of convergence, macroeconomic convergence, institutional convergence, then we get the single currency. But the trend is to begin by, I want my single currency now, before the things are in place. And I can't tell to Europeans that this is sometimes complicated. Yeah. So, so thank you. There was a question on uh, homegrown thinking about Africa earlier. That wasn't addressed. Um, I wanted to say a couple of things. So first, for this to happen, we need to have world-class universities based in Africa. And we need to use world-class training at those institutions and increase uh, representations of uh, African scholars in you know, academics and scholarship about Africa. And uh, one of the things that I have been trying to do for the past like five years at least is to set up this kind of institution, the African School of Economics, that started uh, this year. So I'm very much uh, in line with uh, your thinking about this point. So, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the bank can play a role in supporting research about Africa. Is that what you say? Yeah, it's, it's already happening, you know. I mean, the World Bank, for instance, has um, a program to support, um, it, it's called, I think, uh, uh, it, it, it's called African Center of Excellence. And then I also know that the research department at the African Development Bank is investing quite a bit in research as well. So I think uh, this is something which is uh, growing. Yeah, maybe, yeah sorry. We, uh, yeah, right. Yes. Yes. I've been given one minute and told to shut up. So uh, uh, what can you do with short time horizons? Um, let me suggest two things. Uh, one is um, we need more standardization. Um, and this is actually something that I think the African Development Bank can lead so that um, uh, at the moment every project is totally idiosyncratic. And that's why it can take eight years some standardization that just speeds things up. Uh, the other thing uh, is to get everybody's red lines understood on the table at, right at the beginning so that the red line, everybody's red lines becomes the red lines for the project. What often happens at the moment is the true red lines only get revealed after eight years of faffing about. Um, and so um, just getting those red lines flushed out, genuine legitimate red lines on the table so that they become not the red lines for particular parties, but the red lines for the project, 
And you then only go into the project if everybody understands that. So, um, final comment on PPPs. Look, the global record on PPPs is pretty rough. They're only belatedly starting to be properly analysed, and it, it's not a great record. And the, the lesson that comes out is, is the, the word I said before, it's complexity. And blundering into PPPs without careful understanding is just building trouble later. And so getting really good understanding ex-ante is the secret, I think, to a decent PPP. It's not the sector, it's the ex-ante understanding and knowledge. Thanks very much. Yeah. Thanks very much.